Thanks, Jeremy. They did a great job, didn't they? Thanks, brother. Praise the Lord. Well, here's Jeremy's notes. Oh, these are good. Can I use these for sermon later? Here you go, bud. If you have your Bible today, I'd like to invite you to turn to the book of Malachi, chapter 3. I think our, a lot of our faithful troops are awake camping and making their last fling before the most wonderful time of the year, right, when the children are back in school. Okay, if you're visiting with us, our ushers are coming forward as well. We have plenty of extra Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand and feel free to keep this Bible. You're welcome to take it home. We really want to encourage you to read it. We believe the Bible is God's Word, and it's powerful. It's changed our lives. That's why we're here, and we believe it'll change yours if you're open to it. So, this morning we're finishing up the book of Malachi. We've called this series Empty Religion or Vibrant Faith because whenever people gather as part of God's community, there's two, two issues we have to deal with. Number one, that there's sometimes going to be people who aren't believers in the, in the midst, okay? So they, they come to church, they go through the motions, but they're not really Christ followers. And then secondly, those who are Christ followers sometimes just kind of lose their way. I mean, that's just how life works. We, we stray from the Lord, or we question the Lord, or we get mad at the Lord, or we fall into sin. So Malachi, in some ways, is like the Old Testament book of Corinthians, in that he was dealing with some serious problems among God's people, and he's speaking for the Lord, trying to draw them back into a vital relationship with him. And so the things that he addressed in the, in the beginning of the book, I just want to remind you, the first address, there were six things he addressed. He started off by saying, you're questioning my love. I told you I love you, and you say, how have I loved you? And so he reminds them, I elected you, I chose you out of all the people. That should be enough for you to know that I, I love you. Secondly, he says, you're not honoring me. A son honors his father, but you're not honoring me. And the reason they weren't is because they had grown lethargic and lukewarm. They were bored with their relationship. And sometimes we as Christians struggle with that. We're bored reading the Bible or we'd rather be somewhere else. We come to church, but our minds have drifted and we're not really seriously honoring God and seeking him with all of our hearts. Then Pastor Bob preached from chapter two and reminded us that this is especially true of leaders, that leaders need to really walk close to God because they're the ones that are leading others. And if their lives are a shamble, the rest of the people of God are usually just going to go downhill. The next thing he addressed was the family. And he said, why are you people dealing treacherously with each other? Why are you divorcing one another and marrying pagans and, and totally forgetting your covenant that you made with God? Don't you know that the reason for marriage is to raise godly offspring? And so he was addressing family matters. And then he says, in chapter 3, you've worn God out by questioning his justice I'm going to have to draw near to you for judgment. In fact, you're robbing me. He says, you don't even pay the tithes that I've commanded you to tithe as my followers. Well, this morning, we're going to look at the final one, and it begins in chapter 3, verse 13, where they're going to question why he doesn't bless them in obedience and why he doesn't punish those who are sinning. So let's pray, and then we'll start. Father, may the Holy Spirit... Speak to us. We all have different needs. We all need to hear from the word. And thank you so much that you are able to communicate directly to our hearts 
There are people here that probably aren't saved. There are some who are discouraged. There are some who need equipping, some who need reproving. But we know that when we gather in Jesus' name, he said he would be in our midst and that he would work in our lives. So we turn our attention to Jesus and we want to hear your voice as you speak through your word. And Lord, we pray that your word would accomplish and build up this church and and fulfill your purpose as we make disciples who make disciples. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, begin with me in chapter 3, verse 13. God says, your words have been strong or arrogant against me, says the Lord. It's like he's saying, whoa, those are strong words you're using. And they said, well, what have we spoken against you? And he sums, he sums it up in two ways. He goes, basically, this is what you're doing. You are basically saying that it's a waste of time to obey and follow and serve God. And it's actually a good idea to ignore God and do whatever you want, because that's how you're going to get blessed and be happy. And God goes, hey, those are strong words. Now, let's look how they worded it. Beginning in verse 14, he says, this is what you have said. It is vain to serve God. What profit is it that we have kept his charge and that we have walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts? Now, think about that for a moment. Let's talk about someone who maybe lived a really faithful Christian life. They've really tried hard to be obedient to God and their spouse just walks out on them. Or their kid decides, I don't believe in God, I'm an atheist. You can understand how sometimes people go, man, after all I did for you, God, trying to serve you, and this is what I get, right? So Satan had planted that seed in their mind. But then they were looking around at people who didn't care about God, and they're going, you know, I look, I look at my friends, and they seem to be doing well. Like, like, let's take a kid in the inner city. Let's say he's a Christian kid. He's living down the inner city. He gets a job at Burger King, and he's making minimum wage. He comes home, and he's got 30 bucks a night. Meanwhile, the kid on the corner who's dealing crack makes $1,000 a night, and nothing seems to be going wrong with him. And mother says, well, money doesn't make you happy. So notice verse 15. He says, this is what you're saying. Now we call the arrogant blessed. Not only are the doers of wickedness built up, but they also test God and escape. So again, we talked about this last week. This is what we call theodicy. Why why does God let good people suffer? And why does God not punish evil right away? And, and, And so these people had totally got distorted in the way they view life. And sometimes Christians get this way, like, I did my devotions. I'm doing what's right. Why why am I having problems? And why? They don't even care about God. Why do they have such good kids? Why do their kids get 1600s and they're all getting a free ride to Princeton? Meanwhile, my kid can't even tie his shoes and he's in ninth grade. And so we, we struggle because it doesn't seem fair. But Malachi's been preaching all along, saying, listen, you people need to check your hearts, which, by the way, a doctor pointed this out to me. I would have no idea about this. He goes, hey, by the way, Tom, do you know what that means if you're reading an EKG? That means the person's having a heart attack. So I'm like, wow, that's kind of interesting. I didn't know that. So, So Malachi's going, you people need to check your hearts. Finally, look at verse 16. This is a great verse. Somebody was listening. 
So after all these challenges, these six disputes, it says, then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. Now that little verse has, has a lot to it. Just think about this. So Malachi's been preaching to the whole group and he's challenging them about their family. He's challenging them about their lukewarm relationship with God. He's challenging them about their immorality. He's challenging them about their giving. He's challenging them about their bad attitude toward God. And somebody out there is listening. Now think about this. It says, they spoke to one another. The, the, the word spoke to one another is a reflexive style verb, which means they had this dialogue. They began to discuss things. So you can kind of imagine it would be like after church, some people going, oh boy, here he goes again, blah, blah, blah. And other people going, you know, that really got through to me. Let's talk about this. Think about husbands and wives who go, you know, I think, I think God was speaking to us, right? So what I want you to think about with this verse, this is a really cool verse, is that this is normal Christian community, is that as God speaks to us, we learn how to speak to one another the truths of the gospel. Now, I don't know exactly what they said to one another. Maybe they said, you know what? I believe this stuff. We need to change the way we're living. We need to do some radical repentance. We need to, we need to clean house and start changing our ways. And I'm sure that, that this wasn't going to happen overnight, but it was, it was a decision. Now, here's the thing that I want you to think about. One of the things that we frequently plead with you to do is if you're going to be a part of this church is to get connected, okay? Don't just come on Sunday. You need to be with other people that you can speak to one another. And we provide a variety of opportunities. We call them, the, the broad term we use is small groups, but we have men's studies, all kinds of men's studies at all different times. We have tons of women's studies, all kinds of them. In fact, in the bullet today, there's a whole list of them. There's so many of them at different times. We have young adults uh, uh, forge on Friday nights for young adults. We have youth group. We have what, what we're calling growth groups where couples gather or small groups. We have them, what well, we call them growth groups. So we have like 20 of them meeting all over the place. So at some point, if you're not connected, then my question would be, why not? What is it that you're afraid of to say, hey, I want to be in relationship with some other Christians, really talking about the faith, talking about how we're doing, talking about how we're trying to apply the Bible. It's not a group of perfect people going, what's wrong with you? It's a group of, of people saying, could you pray for me? This is what community looks like. This is how we grow. And it should particularly be true of husbands and wives. When you go home, you say, hey, what would you think of the sermon? It's not like, yeah, that joke was funny or Pastor Tom talked too long. But what, did God, what do you think God was saying to you today? And so notice that God, he notices that. See, we can't notice that. I can look out and you could have a screensaver on your face. You could be thinking, wonder what time the Eagles game is on. But you could be going, mm-hmm, amen. Yeah, brother, you get them. I don't know what's going on in your heart, but God does. So look what he says. As a result of these people responding and saying, listen, we want to start doing what God says. Look at, look at God's response at verse 16. The Lord gave attention and he heard it. And it meant so much to him, it says, a book of remembrance was written before him. 
for those who fear the Lord and those who esteem his name. So think about this. God noticed those who noticed him. He noticed those who were listening to the word with the goal of saying, God, you're speaking to me and I want to do what it says. And his response was, it says he wrote a book. Now, as I did some study on this, the idea of God writing heavenly books is a theme that's throughout scripture. Even Moses had an idea of this back in Exodus. He said, God, if you're going to do this, then just blot my name out of your book. There were earthly books at this time. For example, in the book of Esther, chapter 6, it talks about one of the kings saying, get out the books, and I want to just review the history of the records and deeds of individuals in my kingdom. As you continue on into the New Testament, Jesus spoke of rejoicing that your name is written in the book of life. But I wonder if you've ever thought about this, that God, even though he has a perfect memory, is cataloging and keeping careful records of everything you do and say and think. Listen to this verse. Revelation 12, and you can write this down. You can read it later. In Revelation 12, one day it says there's going to be a great judgment day. It says, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. Books were open. Another book was open, which is the book of life. And listen to this. The dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. So when people get to God and they go, I deserve to be in heaven. I'm a good person. God's going to open up the books and he's going to say, no, you don't. Let me show you your deeds. Okay? But then it says there was another book called the book of life. And if your name wasn't written in the book of life, you will be thrown into the lake of fire. Now, if, if I heard that for the first time, I hope that my number one question would be, how do I know if my name's in the book of life? I, I want my name to be in the book of life. When I stand before God, I, I want Tom Allen's name to be in there. I want him to go, Tom, you're in the book of life. You're in heaven. Okay? We're going to come to that. But, but God writes this book of remembrance. Now, in my mind here in Malachi, this may be a way of saying they became believers. They were converted. And as a result of their conversion... God recorded them in the book of life because notice what he says about them as a result of their faith and repentance. He says in verse 17, and they will be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I prepare my own possession. See, there's a whole lot of people on this earth right now. Seven billion. But only those who followed Christ, who trust in Christ, God says, they're mine. They're my possession. I'm preparing them for a future time when they will inherit the kingdom of God. It's really a cool thought. Christians are reminded in the New Testament. The Bible says Jesus died for us so he could redeem us from our sins and he could purchase for himself a people for his own possession. So there's a special way where God says, you're mine. I love you. You're my inheritance. You're my treasure. I care about you. I will keep you, and you're going to be with me forever. So this is a wonderful promise. Believers, God says, you're mine. And verse 17, as he's talking about judgment, he says, I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. 
So this word spare has the idea of being tender and pitiful and having compassion. So, so at judgment day, everyone who turns to the Lord, God says, I'm going to spare you. I'm going to welcome you into my kingdom. I'm going to spare you just like a father would spare his own son. And so God answers the question, well, what's the difference of people who believe and who don't? It doesn't seem like it matters. God says in verse 18, so you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked. See, that's the problem they were having. They said, there's no distinction. Live for God or you don't live for God. It don't make no difference, right? And God goes, yeah, it will. Because there's going to come a time where you'll see who the real believers are. And notice how he describes the righteous. We're not righteous because we earned it. We're righteous because Christ earned it for us. But here's a characteristic of the righteous. He says, you'll discern between those who serve God and those who don't serve him. That's a good question to ask yourself. Do you believe in Christ enough that you serve God? Or would you have to honestly say this morning, no, I don't really serve him. I live for me. And so God says, one day there will be a distinction between those who trusted my son and served me. Now, do we serve him well? Not always. And Jesus, as his children, is, he'll sometimes say, you're lukewarm, or your deeds aren't complete, or you're serving me, but you don't love me. But at the end of the day, part of being a Christian is to serve God. Meat and potatoes, work. Pushing my will towards saying, I'm going to do things for the Lord within my church. Right? It's not just pie in the sky. Well, I go to church and I sing. The Bible says, be steadfast and unmovable and abounding in the work of the Lord. And ask yourself, do you serve God? Or don't you? And if you don't, then God's saying, I welcome you. I'll forgive you. Come and begin to serve me. So the final chapter then starts looking towards the future. This week, I, I, I noticed something kind of interesting. Remember, this phrase keeps saying, those who feared his name, those who revered God, they were the ones who paid attention. Those who didn't revere God, they just continued in their arrogance. A few months ago, I met a guy at LA Fitness that we really had a deep, engaging conversation about Christ, but it started out with him just totally mocking me, mocking Christianity, mocking his friends who were trying to win him to Christ, mocking hell, mocking, you know, you crazy. But it was a lengthy conversation, and I thought I was making some progress with him. But this, this past week, he came walking into the gym, and I was playing basketball with someone else. And he goes, hey, don't beat the preacher. If you do, you're going to be sent to hell. And I thought, wow. That doesn't sound like a guy who's really fearing God yet. He's really not, not getting it. You don't mock about something like that. Meanwhile, Pastor John and I had a really cool experience. Some guy called the church. He says, my father's dying. Would you come and give him his last rites? Now, because we're not a Catholic church, we don't believe that's in the Bible, so we don't do last rites, but we said, we'll come and talk to your father about the Lord. And as we talked to this man, it was just a precious time, but the son in his 30s, was just listening and listening. And he followed us out as he walked us out. He thanked us over and over again. Then he said this. He said, I read the New Testament all the time. He said, I pray 10 times a day. And I said, well, do you think God 
is going to get you into heaven? Will, will, you, will you enter heaven? He goes, I'm trying. I hope so. I hope I'm a good enough person. Here's a guy who was fearing God. And what a joy it was to point him to the cross and say, listen, you don't have to earn your way to salvation. Christ died for you. And right there on the steps, he prayed with John and I to put his faith in Christ. And he said, this is turning my whole world upside down. But you see, this is how life works. There's a whole lot of people who have no interest in God, and then God wakens people up, and they start being interested. And so one way that God does that is he reminds them of what's coming. So careless people who are doing their thing and living totally in disregard for God, sometimes verses like this awaken them. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Now, some people call this hellfire and brimstone. Oh, you're just trying to scare the hell out of people. And I'm going, wait a minute, hang on, hang on, hang on. I didn't say it. God did. And I'm glad that he doesn't say this in every verse. But the Bible says preach the whole counsel of God. And there are verses like this that ought to cause people to go, if I continue to ignore God in my life, this is what I have to look forward to. And to show the severity of it, if a fire went through, it would burn out the, 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 the branches. But look what this says. It will, it, it'll neither leave root or branch. This is just total destruction. This is what the Bible tells us. God's not willing for people to have this. But this is the outcome of those who ignore God. Those who reject Christ, whether you're a religious rejecter of Christ or an irreligious rejecter of Christ. But if you've come to Jesus, the best you know how, you're trusting him. There's a beautiful promise. Look at verse 2. But for you who fear my name, those of you who believe in me, those of you who are trusting my Jesus, my son, look what he promises us. He says, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. Now, that's a really cool verse. Um, the songwriter said, Hail the Son of Righteousness. And so, in the history of the church, interpreters have taken this phrase in two ways. Some have seen it as an impersonal description of a new day that's dawning. The Son of Righteousness will rise. You know, things will be different when God returns. But in the early church, the church fathers took this as a reference to Christ, and I think they're right. It's not spelled S-O-N, I get it. But the son of righteousness is a figure of speech for Jesus, right? The son of righteousness, Jesus will rise with healing in his wings. Now, what does that mean, healing in his wings? Well, the whole reason we need healing is because of sin in this world. Sin brought sickness, curse, destruction, division, lack of harmony. Christ comes, and the Bible says he's got healing in his wings. He's got balm and salve, and, and, and he's got the, the spiritual medicine to make us whole again. And I was so, so touched by that phrase of healing in his wings. I was, was thinking about it and studying that word. It's the same word that's used in Isaiah when it describes Christ's death. Remember in Isaiah 53, it says, he bore our griefs and our sorrows, and he was smitten by God, and he was afflicted. 
All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned to our own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of his all. And then it says this, and by his stripes, as they whipped him, by his stripes, we are healed. What does that mean, by his stripes we are healed? Well, in Matthew chapter 8, Matthew describes Jesus going around and physically healing people. And he says, this is Isaiah. By his stripes we are healed. But I think the danger there is this. And that is, there are some people who lay hold of that verse and they say, therefore, God doesn't want any Christian to be sick. He doesn't want any Christian to have disease or disability because by his stripes we're healed. So all you have to do is believe and claim that healing and you will be made whole. And while that's true, there are many examples of that. This is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible does not teach that it's God's will to heal every Christian in this life. And to put people on a guilt trip if they don't get healed is incredibly cruel, and it's false teaching. Jesus Christ does not heal all Christians. The Apostle Paul had a thorn in the flesh for which he could not heal himself. It is not God's will for us to always be healthy and wealthy. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. So I want to put this in balance. If you have an illness, an affliction, a a mental illness, a physical illness, believe God and pray with all your heart for healing because truly flowing out of Calvary, the Lord Jesus Christ has the power to heal. And sometimes churches who don't emphasize the gifts of the Spirit are missing out on powerful works of the Spirit of God. Don't underestimate God's power to heal. There was a brother over at um, Crossing Community Church who was given six months. He had terminal brain cancer from melanoma. It was done. He even got his friends together and gave him a gospel presentation. They held a prayer meeting, and they prayed over him, and God miraculously completely removed that melanoma, and he had a celebration service over at Crossing. Praise God. Amen. But... That doesn't mean God's going to do that with everybody all the time. So please, when this verse says the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings, this is a time of the Lord's return. And ultimately, I can promise you this, that he may not heal you in this life. He'll give you grace for whatever you're suffering with. But I assure you this, that in the life to come, you'll be as healed as you could ever imagine. In fact, to describe what it's going to be like when we're free from the curse of sin, he then says this, as the Lord heals us, look what he says, then, in verse 2, you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. And you're like, sorry, I'm not following the analogy. So let's put it in American culture. You will be like your pet dog who's been cooped up all day long when you finally come home and open the door and he's so full of joy he's turning himself inside out with happiness that's what it's going to be like when christ comes back and he takes away all of our afflictions and the bible says there's no more sorrow no more pain no more death no more suffering the lord himself is in our presence all things are made new and we rejoice and that's our hope that if not in this life we're going to be fully healed. Please say amen to that, because there's a lot of hurting people here right now. At the same time, 
week after week, I say this, the church is a hospital of healing, okay? And so many of our soul conditions, our sufferings, our agony, our anxiety, our sin struggles, our disharmony, don't think that, oh, it's never going to get any better in this life. God heals. There's no Humpty Dumpties with Jesus. And while he may not heal you physically, he can restore your soul and bring you to places of peace and spiritual progress that we never would have imagined. That's the power of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why God brings us together into community. So with that in mind, God says, not only will you do that, but you're going to have an opportunity to be a part of the judgment of the wicked. In Genesis, God said this about Satan. He says, Jesus is going to crush you. The the seed of the woman will crush you. But in Romans, it says the God of peace is going to crush Satan under your feet. And here we read that believers, think about those believers who were killed, if, if indeed many of them seem to be believers, believers who are being hacked to death by ISIS, right? Well, notice one day the tables will be turned because the text says this, and then you'll skip about like calves from the stall and you will tread down the wicked and they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I'm preparing, says the Lord of hosts. So like Christ, we meekly take it. We take our martyrdom if we must, knowing that one day the tables will be completely turned for God's believers. So Malachi closes his sermon. Some have suggested that this was later added by another writer, still inspired by God, to do two things. Primarily this, to show that both the law of Moses and the prophets were authoritative. There's some suggestion that at this time, people felt that what Moses said was important. But by now, there were the the, the major and minor prophets that had been written, and maybe they didn't see the same authority to the prophets. So it's been suggested that perhaps this was added to show that both the Torah of Moses and the prophetic writings are both authoritative. I'm not sure I'm fully seeing that, but but there's a bigger issue here, and that's this. Let's look at verse 4. Remember the law of Moses, my servant. Even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. So if you're a believer, remember God's word. Now we're not under the law of Moses, but we are reminded that we're under the law of Christ to live in the spirit, to not indulge our flesh. So remember the word of God. But then God says this, behold, I'm going to send Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Now any Jew back at that time, who had a, a thought about God. They knew this verse. Because this, when this was finished being written, they waited 400 years. They're looking for Elijah. Today, most of you who know a little bit about Jewish studies, they still leave an empty seat for Elijah at one of their feasts. Because they know the Bible says, I'm going to send Elijah. But we know from reading the New Testament that, first of all, this was a reference to John the Baptist. Because when Jesus took the disciples up on the mountain and he showed them his kingdom in transfiguration, as they were coming down, they said, Jesus, I thought Malachi said, Elijah comes first. And Jesus goes, he does. In fact, Elijah has come. And clearly there, he was referring to John the Baptist. John dressed like Elijah. He preached like Elijah. But then he said this, Elijah has come, but then he said, and Elijah is coming. 
So my understanding here is that there will actually be two fulfillments of this verse. Elijah the prophet came in the form of John the Baptist, but in the book of Revelation chapter 11, in verse 3, it describes an event in the last days in which both Moses and Elijah will be present again on the earth just prior to the return of Christ. But I want to close with this beautiful thought. Why will Elijah come? Let's read these last three verses. He's going to come to restore the hearts of the fathers to their children. Or that word can mean to return the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. So what's he saying here? He's saying, listen, society, because of sin, is usually in decay. And that decay shows up extremely in the family. Now, just as was going on in these days, we saw all the problems they were having. Is this not American culture? Is our family unit in American culture not under tremendous attack? Is our culture not falling apart? And, and, and there's all kinds of issues for this. There's neglect. There's so many parents who are having kids who just neglect their kids. Single parents who, who, who just could care less. Not every single parent neglects their kids, but there's just a lot of parents, wealthy parents. Many parents neglect their kids, right? Many parents are terrible parents. They're selfish. They're self-absorbed. They don't realize that having children is a tremendous sacrifice and it takes a ton of patience and prayer and you're in it for the long haul. When I was foolish and young, when I wore a younger man's clothes, I used to think, I can't wait till my kids are teenagers, then I'll have some more time to just chill. And it's like, eh. I got grandkids now and it, it goes on for life. But listen, if you're a believer, you realize the, the importance of your kids and not only are parents, many of them struggling in their marriage and in their relationship with their kids, but there are many kids who have terrible hearts and attitudes. The Bible describes in Romans 1 in the last days, it says men will be disobedient to their parents. So here we have this American culture where there's so many broken families, so many homes where there's so much disharmony, so much shouting, not eating together, not praying together, hating one another, just going off, living in their little electronic rooms or worlds, shutting themselves off. And you go, well, Tom, what's the solution? Well, there's no easy solution, but the solution is God has to raise up and bring about repentance and restoration of families. This is not a program. We don't go, oh, we're going to bring in growing kids God's way, and everything's going to change. It has to be people of God saying, Lord, we're committing ourselves to seeing reconciliation among marriages, among parents, parents learning how to love their kids. Many of you, you parents of younger kids, it's hard to love your kids all the time, to love them biblically. Titus chapter 2 says older women need to train younger women to love their kids. It's hard to love your spouse. And Hillary Clinton says, it takes a village, and I go, nonsense, it takes a community of God's people, and it takes repentance, and it takes prayer. So as we close, just think about how the church partners together with families. You don't just send your kid to youth group at Christian school and think, oh, wow, now he's going to walk with God, now he's going to obey me. It starts with parents working on their marriage, parents working on their relationships, 
learning tools, how to, how to dialogue with our kids. Some of your kids have lost their way. They're atheists, they're rebels. I've been there, done that. I thank God my kids have all turned to the Lord and they're walking with them now. But even there, I don't go, oh, wow, look what I did. Or it's a guarantee that they're always going to be this way. So as we close, I want to just give you a few things that I want you to think about. The book of Malachi has been such a challenge. And so as we wind down, just, just think about some of these things. Number one, those of you who have been doing the right things, you're trying. You're trusting God. You're trying. You're trying to serve him. You've opened your home for a Bible study. You're involved teaching Sunday school. You're in the word, and you're going, man, so many things are going wrong. Can I remind you this? The Bible says, do not grow weary in well-doing. In due time, you'll reap. So hold on. Circumstances may, may look like nothing matters. What difference does it make if I'm obedient to God? But it matters. And those little things matter. And so if you're discouraged and you can relate to these people questioning God, trust the Lord Jesus in this difficult time. Secondly, those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. This morning, I want to really challenge you. If you have not yet connected here and you're just an attender, why? There's a difference between a good sound excuse and an excuse that sounds good. We've got a newcomer's dinner coming where you can meet folks. You can sign up on the communication card and say, hey, I'd like to find out. If you just want to meet with someone one-on-one, we've got five pastors. We've got six or seven elders. If you need some counsel. But if you're not connected with anyone, if you're not even speaking to your spouse about your relationship with Christ, ask God this morning. Make a commitment. I'm going to change in that. I want to be like these people who feared the Lord and spoke to one another. Pastor John will help you to get connected. He's our pastor of ministry and discipleship. That's what we're trying to do, to get everyone connected. Third, praise God that our names are in the book of life. Amen? The disciples came to Jesus one day. They said, Jesus, we can cast out demons. You should have seen us, man. We were nuking them. And Jesus goes, guys, knock it off. He says, don't rejoice because you can cast out demons. He says, you're getting excited about the wrong thing. Luke chapter 10, he says, rejoice that your name's written in the book of life. See, we used to sit together and sing the old gospel hymn, there's a new name written down in glory, and it's mine. Just rejoicing, oh Lord, why would you have mercy on me and write my name in your book? And then next, for those of you that are hurting, the Lord Jesus is the great physician. And there's healing in his wings. There's balm in Gilead available for you. It may not come in a perfect restoration, but there's grace to help you, to minister to your marriage, to minister to your emotions, to minister to your sin struggles, to help you, to help you to overcome your fears, your, your anxieties, your pain, your sorrow, your grief, your unbelief. The Lord Jesus is all about healing broken people, and there's healing for you. It might not be perfect healing, but whatever he, he has for you, he'll give you through prayer and faith, and the rest will come when he rises with healing in his wings. Two more and we're done. Based on this verse, the hearts of the fathers to their kids and the kids of the fathers, please, would you make it a point to pray 
First, for your family. Seriously, pray for your family. Pray for your marriage. Or if, if, if you're in a broken marriage. Many of you are praying. I'm not saying you're not. But then go beyond that. Pray for the families of our church. You have no idea how much pain, how many people are struggling. Pray for our young people. Sometimes I've held a prayer meeting for parents of wayward kids and the place will just be full of people going, my kid has lost his way. Pray for these young people who have turned their hearts away from their parents. Everybody wants to blame somebody else. It's the parents, it's the kids. But pray, pray that this church would be a family healing center. That doesn't mean we don't care about single people. We care about single people. We want to minister to you. We want to minister to orphans. We want to minister to widows. We want to minister to widowers. But the family of God is but the larger picture of the the family units. Pray for God and families uniting together. Children learning to obey and honor their parents. Parents learning how to discipline their children biblically, not out of anger, but learning how to build relationships and spend time with their kids. Having a home where there's a Christ-centered environment and you're like, Pastor, you have no idea. You don't know what goes on in my house. I don't need to know. All I got to do is read the Bible. You don't know what goes on in my house. But we need prayer. God wants to bring about this great reconciliation. And this will be a miracle work of God. And God's doing this. There are so many people whose marriages are being healed. There's so many people whose kids are being restored. There's so many addicts who are break Satan's got them in prison and Satan's held them and God's setting them free. It happens through prayer. But the last thing I want to say, and this one to me is is so exciting. God says in the final day, he says, I will spare you as a man spares his son. So let's just start with this point. None of us deserve to be spared from hell. We are sinners. I don't care how religious you are. You and I deserve hell. So for God to say, I will spare you as a man spares his son, is an unbelievable promise. But something I want you to think about. There's only one reason why God could say that out of his love. It's because he didn't spare his son. See, God looked down on us and he says, you all deserve to go to hell. Tom, you deserve hell. And I I get it. Lord, God, be merciful. But when I heard the good news, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He didn't spare his son, but he delivered him up to the cross. And Jesus bore all the hell that I deserved. That totally rocked my world. That totally changed my life. And this morning, there may be some of you who are going, I don't know whether God's going to spare me. And you better figure that out. And the way to figure that out is, number one, to realize the only way he'll spare you is because he didn't spare him. And so if there's any reason why you think you're going to go to heaven other than because of him, you need to repent. Some of you need to repent this morning of being irreligious. You don't care about God, but today you do, and you want to trust Christ. Some of you need to be repenting of being religious. I'm a good person, and I think God's going to let me into heaven. But I want to invite you this morning to receive God's free gift of salvation. Don't let anybody tell you you can't know whether you're going to heaven. You should know. The Bible says these things have been written that you might know. God said to these people, I will spare you. Why? Because they trusted. They trusted in in Christ. And you can do the same. And I want to invite you this morning as we close in prayer to do that.
while our heads are bowed, if God's spoken to you and, and, and you are wondering, will he spare me? The answer is, he didn't spare his son. So if you will come and believe, come as you are right now, the best you know how in your heart, just say to him, Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I don't deserve heaven. Thank you for not sparing your son, God, but letting him die in my place to pay for my sins. I believe that, and I trust Jesus to come into my life and forgive my sins. Change me, Lord. I'm ready to follow you. I'm ready to be forgiven because I believe what Jesus did for me. If that's your prayer this morning, I want to pray for you. I'd like to ask you to do something. I want you to raise your hand and look at me for just a moment so I can pray for you. Is there anybody that says, I'd like to, to begin to follow Christ? You've never done that before, but you've asked God to, to come into your heart. You want him to spare you because he didn't spare his son. Anybody at all, just raise your hand and say, Pastor Tom, would you pray for me? We had two people this morning make that decision. Anybody at all? On your way out, I'd like to ask you to do something. If, if you want to talk about that, I want you to write down your phone number. You might not have time. Bob Zimmerman's going to be at the back door. He's got a red polo shirt on. He's a big man, and he'll be standing right at the door. I'll be back there. If you'd like to talk further about your relationship with Christ, just write down your phone number, and we'll be glad to give you a call this week. Thank you, Father, so much for your word. Thank you so much that Jesus is our healer. He's our savior. Thank you that you didn't spare him so that you could spare us. Lord, help us to speak to one another words of love and encouragement as we build each other up in the gospel. And Lord, as our church continues to experience your blessing, may we give you all the glory and may more disciples be made. And I pray for every hurting parent who's struggling with their kids, that you would give them hope. I pray for every straying child, every hardened child, every rebellious child, that you would bring them to a place of repentance and tenderness, a place of submission to their parents. Lord, we are asking together as a church in the name of Jesus for a powerful working of your spirit this fall, that more and more families would be strengthened, that there would be great joy in homes as people are reading the Bible, singing songs about Christ, laughing and joking and forgiving each other freely. Oh, Lord, bring healing to our land. Bring healing to our country. Oh, God, may we shine as lights. May we show this dark and broken country that there is such a thing as a happy, godly Christian home. Only Christ can bring this about. And we pray believing that your spirit will do this great miracle, Lord, and burn our hearts with a desire to pray for this. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.